Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of September 14th, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And on this rant, we're going to talk about a book by an author I've always been obsessed with, once again, indulging my fetish for dead Englishmen, George Orwell. Yet, this is a book that I just read for the first time, Burmese Days, his first novel, published in 1934. I've read just about all the rest of Orwell's books, but I'd been saving this one to have something to look forward to. That's really why I put it off, because I love his writing so much, and he only wrote so much before he died. I was kind of saving this one, if you can understand that. But finally, I figured now was the time to crack it, because maybe it could provide some insight into the current crisis in Burma, with the country descending into civil war two and a half years after the coup d'etat that ousted the government of pro-democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi. So I cracked it, really looking forward to an incisive anti-colonialist critique. And man, did I hate it! Oh God, it was so bad! So bitterly disappointing. I just couldn't wait for it to be over. But I feel like I need to do this rant just to get the bad taste out of my mouth. And we'll also be exploring the question of whether it does, in spite of being a very distasteful read, offer any insights into the current crisis in Burma. Okay, a couple of things to get out of the way first. Okay, first, the name of the country. I call it, as Orwell did, Burma. I am, so far at least, resisting the mandate to start calling it Myanmar. And let me explain my reasons. It was the damn Slork, the State Law and Order Restoration Council, the military junta that ruled from 1988 to 2011, that changed the name to Myanmar in a bogus play to nationalism, just like Mobutu changed the name of Congo to Zaire, only to have it changed back after he was deposed. And now Narendra Modi, for similar grandstanding and political reasons, is insisting that we all start calling India Bharat, which is being rejected by the opposition. Aung San Suu Kyi always rejected the name Myanmar as regime propaganda and insisted on calling the country Burma. She only started calling it Myanmar about the same time she started acquiescing in the military's genocide of the Rohingya people, starting not quite 10 years ago. So, I'm sticking with Burma. If any Burmese who are not supporters of the ruling junta wish to dissuade me on this, 
I'm willing to hear what you have to say, but for now, I'm sticking with Burma. Also, spoiler alert, this book was written like 90 years ago, and I assume that everyone who wanted to read it has already read it. Or, if you haven't read it yet, if, like me, you've been holding out and intend to, but meanwhile you don't want to hear me give away the ending, turn off this podcast now, go read the book, and then come back and listen to the podcast and tell me what you think. All right. Orwell, then known by his birth name, Eric Blair, served as an officer in the British Imperial Police in Burma from 1922 to 1927. So the book is clearly, at least partly, autobiographical. And it was his experiences in Burma that turned Orwell into an anti-colonialist. Now, even when writers have the best of intentions, deeply ingrained racism can warp the final product. Thus, Joseph Conrad, in Heart of Darkness, sought to expose the barbarity of Belgian colonial rule in the Congo, but instead created a tale in which European conquerors are seduced into atavistic primitivism by the people they conquered. Now, I don't think Orwell failed here as badly as Conrad did, but this book is still very problematic and cringe-inducing. First of all, there aren't any favorable characters. All the characters are odious, although some more so than others. The protagonist, I won't say hero, is among the less odious ones, but he's still pretty damn odious, which, if we are to assume the book is partly autobiographical, perhaps sheds some light on Orwell's own self-esteem problems. A friend who also read it noted that the only favorable character is the dog. And it's true, the protagonist has this happy, loyal little dog who comes across much better than any of the human characters. And even the dog comes to a bad end. Oh my God, it was so depressing. Yeah, this book has an unhappy ending, as just about all of Orwell's novels do, certainly both 1984 and Animal Farm, if you can call that a novel exactly. The only Orwell novel I can think of without exactly an unhappy ending, although a slightly bittersweet one, is Keep the Aspidistra Flying. I haven't read A Clergyman's Daughter. I think that's the last of his novels I haven't read. Maybe I'll crack it one day. But in Burmese days, everyone is so ghastly that you don't know who to root for. Instinctively, I wanted to root for the Burmese, but even the Burmese characters are horrible. Okay, I'm someone who thinks that this prohibition on white writers portraying non-white characters as cultural appropriation is absurd, as if Herman Melville is now unkosher because Keequeg and Harper Lee because Calpurnia Ditto depictions of 
Indigenous Mexicans by B. Travin and Graham Greene, and of Africans by Doris Lessing, and Indians by E.M. Foster. But I have to say, the depictions of the Burmese by Orwell are so ugly that they almost loan credence to this fashionable dogma. While the flawed protagonist is English, the really evil antagonist is Burmese. This is the local corrupt magistrate in the little jungle town where the book is set, Yuko Finn. It should also be noted that probably the most favorable human character is not English nor Burmese, but Indian. This is Dr. Viraswamy, the town doctor, who is threatening to expose the magistrate's corruption, causing the magistrate to scheme against him, framing him as involved in pro-independence activities, which could, of course, get him in a lot of trouble with the British authorities. Dr. Aviraswamy is portrayed as authentically principled, but he appeals to his best friend, the protagonist, to use his influence to win his membership in the town's elite colonial institution, the European Club, which will afford him some level of protection. And Dr. Viraswamy is just embarrassingly fawning and obsequious toward the protagonist. And this brings us to the protagonist, an English timber merchant named John Flory, who is embittered and alcoholic, and portrayed as psychologically scarred because of a birthmark on his face, which is a plot device I really dislike, because it is ultimately contributing to the irrational stigma around such things. Mario Vargas Llosa also used it in his otherwise really excellent book, El Hablador, the Storyteller. And, of course, it is a trope used in almost every James Bond film. The villain has got to be somehow disfigured. I find it very annoying. But Flory, at least, is not a total overt racist like the rest of the English characters. His best friend in the village is Dr. Viraswamy, and he has some genuine respect and appreciation for Burmese culture. But he also has a Burmese mistress, Mala May, who he physically and emotionally abuses and kicks to the wayside as soon as he falls for an English woman, which comes back to haunt him in the end, but we'll get to that. So the book is mostly about Flory's torn loyalties as he's put in a position where he has to advocate for Dr. Viraswamy being admitted to the European club as its first non-European member. And the other members are aghast at this idea, and they're undisguised and extremely ugly racism is portrayed at great length and almost pornographic detail. I know it was supposed to be critical satire, but there's still something indulgent about it in a very unseemly way. This book 
probably uses the N-word more than Huckleberry Finn does, and much more viciously. Anyway, Flory overcomes his reticence and does, in fact, petition for Dr. Viraswamy's membership in the club, even though this means exposing himself to the barbs of the other members who bait him as an <clears throat> N-word lover. The only time any Burmese are portrayed as acting with any dignity is in the local uprising toward the end of the book, and even then they are just nameless extras, but at least they're standing up for themselves instead of trying to curry favor with the English in self-denigrating manner. The uprising actually starts as a false flag, so to speak, instigated by paid agents of the magistrate, so it could be pinned on Dr. Viraswamy. But it actually turns into a real uprising, thanks to the pointless, trigger-happy killing of a Burmese by one of the most egregiously racist of the English. And the European club is besieged by the natives. And this is where the two subplots merge. Flory has by this point kicked out his Burmese mistress because he's fallen for a young English woman who has just arrived in the village, Elizabeth Lackerstein, who, to use a fashionable pejorative that I don't really like, but I'll use here anyway because it fits so well, is a total Karen. She's prissy, forgive me if that's a sexist term, and just viscerally disgusted by the Burmese and constantly being offended and scandalized by their ways while actually behaving in offensive manner toward them. The only sense in which she's not a Karen is that she's not actually middle class herself. In fact, she had to come to Burma to stay with her aunt and uncle because she had no other option when her parents died but she totally identifies with the bourgeoisie and aspires to join them. And she resists Flory's advances and is especially put off by his closeness to the Burmese, although she doesn't know about the mistress, until the uprising. And when the club is besieged by the natives with all the members inside, including Flory and Elizabeth, and the telephone line is cut, Flory, for the first time, shows some real daring and initiative and physical courage and makes a dash through the siege, actually swimming up the river to the local barracks of the Imperial Police to get help. And this finally wins him the good graces of Elizabeth. Very tellingly, an episode in which he betrays the Burmese and proves his loyalty to whiteness. And everything is going swimmingly for Flory after this. He's got the girl, and he's going to propose to her, and he's pretty certain she'll say yes. But the fact that he was petitioning for Dr. Viraswamy to get membership in the club made him a target of the corrupt magistrate, who induces the spurned mistress to publicly confront him in front of Elizabeth and the rest of the town's respectable white society in a very humiliating way, 
Elizabeth is outraged and dumps him like the proverbial hot potato, and he shoots himself in the chest after first shooting his faithful dog. The end. Hoo boy. Wow, not exactly uplifting. <laughs> so, um, for starters, in terms of my own disappointment about the book, there wasn't nearly as much politics, narrowly defined, as I expected. Looking for images to use for my website post about this podcast, I stumbled on a great cheesy paperback edition of the book from the 50s, which shows Flory in a passionate embrace with Elizabeth and the spurned mistress looking on, seething. And it says, A jungle saga of hate and lust, which is actually a more accurate depiction than the contemporary editions that mostly just show Burmese landscape images. And yeah, there is a lot of purple prose describing the landscapes in the book. And Orwell later admitted that, quote, in all novels about the East, the scenery is the real subject matter, end quote. But hate and lust and the psychosexual loom much larger in the book than either scenery or politics, narrowly defined. Now, the Orwell Foundation website calls the book, quote, an examination of the debasing effect of empire on occupied and occupier, unquote. I think the better words would be colonized and colonizer, but yes, that is what the book is examining. Orwell wrote in his essay, Shooting an Elephant, his other well-known work about Burma, that the colonizers have to wear a mask before the natives. And Franz Fanon, in Black Skin, White Masks, later reversed this idea. So both sides are wearing a mask toward each other. How much the Burmese obsequiousness toward the British was feigned and how much was internalized self-hatred is an open question. And maybe Orwell himself didn't know. He was probably just depicting what he had actually witnessed in Burma. But the unflattering depiction of the Burmese still makes for very difficult reading. So, what was he trying to say in this book about Burma and the British experience in Burma? Well, some enlightenment on this question is provided by an early essay Orwell wrote on this theme, probably one of the first things he ever wrote, still under the name Eric Blair, for a Parisian publication, Le Progrès Civique, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in May 1929. Kind of hard to find. I had to do some real hunting to find the full text. Now, I assume this originally appeared in French, so I don't know if it was written in English and translated by the editors and then translated back into English for the version I found online, or if I'm reading Orwell's original English, which I hope is the case, or if he wrote it in French, in which case it only went through one translation. But in any case, this is what I got. Title, How a Nation is Exploited, The British Empire in Burma, by Eric Blair, 
1929. I will read excerpts. I assume there's no copyright problem almost a century later. Uh, some contextual warnings. He uses words here, which are again cringe-inducing for a contemporary reader. Pagan, savage, ignorant, oriental. He also refers to Burma as an Indian province, which it was at the time. Governed as a province of British India, it wasn't administratively separated from India until 1937. Okay, to commence from the text. Burma lies between India and China. Ethnologically, it belongs to Indochina. It is three times the size of England and Wales, with a population of about 14 million, of whom roughly 9 million are Burmese. Or, I will interject, Burmen, as is generally said today, to denote the ethnicity as opposed to the nationality, to continue with the text. The rest is made up of countless Mongol tribes who have emigrated at various periods from the steppes of Central Asia and Indians who have arrived since the English occupation. The Burmese are Buddhists. The tribesmen worship various pagan gods. To be able to talk in their own language to the people of such diverse origins living in Burma, you would need to know 120 different languages and dialects. This country, the population of which is one-tenth as dense as that of England, is one of the richest in the world. It abounds in natural resources, which are only just beginning to be exploited. There are tin, tungsten, jade, and rubies, and these are the least of its mineral materials. At this moment, it produces 5% of the world's petroleum, and its reserves are far from exhausted. But the greatest source of wealth, and that which feeds between 80 and 90% of the population, is the paddy fields. Rice is grown everywhere in the basin of the Irrawaddy, which flows through Burma from north to south. In the south, in the huge delta, where the Irrawaddy brings down tons of alluvial mud every year, the soil is immensely fertile. The harvests, which are remarkable in both quality and quantity, enable Burma to export rice to India, Europe, and even to America. If we add that the Burmese countryside is exceptionally beautiful, with broad rivers, high mountains, eternally green forests, brightly colored flowers, exotic fruits, the phrase earthly paradise naturally springs to mind. So it is hardly surprising that the English tried for a long time to gain possession of it. In 1820, they seized a vast expanse of territory. This operation was repeated in 1852, and finally in 1882, the Union Jack flew over almost all the country. Certain mountainous districts in the north, inhabited by small, savage tribes, had until recently escaped the clutches of the British, but it is more and more likely that they will meet the same fate as the rest of the country, thanks to the process euphemistically known as peaceful penetration, quote-unquote, which means, in plain English, 
peaceful annexation. In this article, I do not seek to praise or blame this manifestation of British imperialism. Let us simply note it is a logical result of any imperialist policy. The government of all the Indian provinces under the control of the British Empire is of necessity despotic, because only the threat of force can subdue a population of several million subjects. But this despotism is latent. It hides behind the mask of democracy. The great maxim of the English in governing an Oriental race is never get something done by a European when an Oriental can do it. In other words, supreme power remains with the British authorities, but the minor civil servants who have to carry out day-to-day administration and who must come into contact with the people in the course of their duties are recruited locally. In Burma, for example, the lower-grade magistrates, all policemen up to the rank of inspector, members of the Postal Service, government employees, village elders, etc., are Burmese. Recently, to appease public opinion and put a stop to nationalist agitation, which was beginning to cause concern, it was even decided to accept the candidature of educated natives for several important posts. Nevertheless, the British control the country. Of course, Burma, like each of the Indian provinces, has a parliament, always the show of democracy, but in reality, its parliament has very little power. Nothing of any consequence lies within its jurisdiction. Most of the members are puppets of the government, which is not above using them to nip in the bud any bill which seems untimely. In addition, each province has a governor appointed by the English, who has at his disposal a veto just as absolute as that of the President of the United States to oppose any proposal which displeases him. Yet although the British government is essentially despotic, it is by no means unpopular. The English are building roads and canals, in their own interest, of course, but the Burmese benefit from them. They set up hospitals, open schools, and see to the maintenance of law and order. And after all, the Burmese are mere peasants, occupied in cultivating the land. They have not reached that stage of intellectual development which makes for nationalists. Their village is their universe, and as long as they are left in peace to cultivate their fields, they do not care whether their masters are black or white. A proof of this political apathy on the part of the people of Burma is the fact that the only British military forces in the country are two English infantry battalions and around 10 battalions of an Indian infantry and mounted police. Thus, 12,000 armed men, mostly Indians, are enough to subdue a population of 14 million. The most dangerous enemies of the government are the young men of the educated classes. If these classes were more numerous and were really educated, they could perhaps raise the revolutionary banner, but they are not. The reason is firstly that, as we have seen, the majority of the Burmese are peasants. Secondly, 
The British government is at pains to give the people only summary instruction, which is almost useless, merely sufficient to produce messengers, low-grade civil servants, petty lawyers' clerks, and other white-collar workers. Care is taken to avoid technical and industrial training. This rule, observed throughout India, aims to stop India from becoming an industrial country capable of competing with England. Let us now consider the economic question. Here again we find the Burmese in general too ignorant to have a clear understanding of the way in which they are being treated, and as a result, too ignorant to show the least resentment. Besides, for the moment, they have not suffered much economic damage. It is true that the British seized the mines and the oil wells. It is true that they control timber production. It is true that all sorts of middlemen, brokers, millers, exporters, have made colossal fortunes from rice without the producer, that is, the peasant, getting a thing out of it. It is also true that the get-rich-quick businessmen who made their pile from rice, petrol, etc., are not contributing, as they should, to the well-being of the country, and that their money, instead of swelling local reserves in the form of taxes, is sent abroad to be spent in England. If we are honest, it is true that the British are robbing and pilfering Burma quite shamelessly. But we must stress that the Burmese hardly notice it for the moment. Their country is so rich, their population so scattered, their needs, like those of all Orientals, so slight that they are not conscious of being exploited. The peasant cultivating his patch of ground lives more or less as his ancestors did in Marco Polo's day, if he wishes, he can buy virgin land for a reasonable price. He certainly leads an arduous existence, but he is, on the whole, free from care. Hunger and unemployment are for him meaningless words. There is work and food for everyone. Why worry needlessly? But, and this is the important point, the Burmese will begin to suffer when a large part of the richness of their country has declined. Although Burma has developed to a certain extent since the war, meaning World War I, already the peasant there is poorer than he was 20 years ago. He is beginning to feel the weight of land taxation, for which he is not compensated by the increased yield of his harvest. The workers' wages have not kept up with the cost of living. The reason is that the British government has allowed free entry into Burma for veritable hordes of Indians who, coming from a land where they were literally dying of hunger, work for next to nothing and are, as a result, fearsome rivals for the Burmese. Add to this a rapid rise in population growth, at the last census, the population registered an increase of 10 million in 10 years. It is easy to see that sooner or later, as happens in all overpopulated countries, the Burmese will be dispossessed of their lands, reduced to a state of semi-slavery in the service of capitalism, 
and will have to endure unemployment into the bargain. They will then discover what they hardly suspect today, that the oil wells, the mines, the milling industry, the sale and cultivation of rice are all controlled by the British. Their relationship with the British Empire is that of slave and master. Is the master good or bad? That is not the question. Let us simply say that his control is despotic, and to put it plainly, self-interested. Even though the Burmese have not had much cause for complaint up till now, the day will come when the riches of their country will be insufficient for a population which is constantly growing. Then they will be able to appreciate how capitalism shows its gratitude to those to whom it owes its existence. End quote. Well, it didn't take that long, actually. The year after Orwell wrote this essay, the Saya San Rebellion broke out in Burma, a peasant uprising that lasted over a year and had to be put down by the colonial army with considerable bloodshed. This was uh, 1930 to 1932. Named after Saya San, the Buddhist monk who was the leader of the rebellion and a pretender to the Burmese throne. This was the last effort to restore the Burmese monarchy, which had been abolished by the British after they defeated it in the Third Anglo-Burmese War in 1885. And this uprising was not, obviously, due to any demographic pressures, contrary to Orwell's Malthusian assumption. Obviously, there was no great leap in the population of the country between 1929 and 1930, but due to a plunge in commodity prices, including rice, due to the Great Depression. So the so-called, you know, oriental quietism that Orwell perceived proved very shortly to be an illusion. Alas, as Orwell presaged in this essay, there was a big anti-Indian element to the Sayasan Rebellion, and um, lots of ethnically motivated attacks on Indians. Now, the Sayasan Rebellion can be seen as either the last gasp of Burmese monarchism or the first step towards the independence movement, which began to mount over the following decade, seeking republicanism and generally socialism. Things got somewhat complicated in World War II when Burma was occupied by Japan from 1943 to 1945, and the independence movement was divided as to whether to block with the Japanese against the British and join the nominally independent puppet government the Japanese had set up, or to join with the British against the Japanese on a tactical and temporary basis on anti-fascist grounds. And the central independence leader, Ong San, would take both positions over the course of the war. But after the war, the UK had to face the music, and Burma became an independent republic in 1948. And as the current headlines make all too clear, things have not worked out very well. 
Aung San, the most respected figure in the independence movement and the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, of course, was to have become the first prime minister of an independent Burma, but he was assassinated by rivals the year before formal independence, that is to say 1947, and independent Burma has spent by far the great majority of its existence under military dictatorships. And despite the socialist rhetoric of some of these dictatorships, under a kind of oligarchic capitalism, with the economy controlled by companies and oligarchs favored by the regime, tycoons being the usual term. So, why is that? Well, I would submit, for many of the reasons that Orwell outlines in his essay, factors which, unfortunately, have survived formal independence and indicate that Burma has not been sufficiently decolonized. First and foremost, despotism is still mandated by the ongoing imperative to pacify the restive annexed tribal areas, which since independence in 1948 have never been under real government control. And many are still waging pro-independence or pro-autonomy insurgencies today. The Irrawaddy Basin is still the Burmese heartland, as opposed to the jungles and mountains that surround it on the north, east, and west, forming the borders with China, Thailand, and India, respectively. Before his assassination, Aung San brokered the Panglang Agreement with leaders of tribal peoples, including the Shan, Kachin, and Chin, guaranteeing, quote, full autonomy in internal administration for the frontier areas, unquote. But this was betrayed by the leaders who followed him, especially longtime dictator General Nay Win, who insisted on a centralized model of rule. And really, independent Burma has not known a minute of peace, but long insurgencies by the Shan, Kachin, the Chin, the Mon, and the Karen. Another reason I dislike that popular pejorative, Karen is the name of an indigenous people in the eastern hills of Burma. And the Burmese army has really just inherited the role of the British in an ongoing struggle to effectively annex these areas, still going on today. This has led to widespread warlordism in these peripheral areas, with army generals and rebel leaders alike maintaining effectively private armies and engaging in uncontrolled resource exploitation, including of timber and jade, the narco-economy has also exploded with much opium produced and Burma becoming a top global source of heroin. For the peasants, of course, the opium is just another cash crop, and the warlords in the mountains aren't all that much different from the perspective of the peasants, 
from the oligarchs in the heartland. Which brings us to the question of land and the peasants remaining effectively colonized by the warlords in the mountains and in the fertile lands of the Irrawaddy Basin, the Burman heartland, by middlemen, brokers, millers, exporters, the so-called tycoons, now organized in entities such as the Myanmar Agribusiness Public Corporation, MAPCO, with much foreign investment, especially Japanese, which was among the first companies to be listed on the Yangon Stock Exchange, which opened in 2017. So Burma's population is now above 50 million, but again, contrary to Orwell's outdated Malthusian assumption, the fundamental factors driving peasant unrest have more to do with political economy than demographics. And again, socialist rhetoric notwithstanding, the oil continues to be largely in foreign corporate hands. Oil exploitation with international investment in Burma has often been linked to atrocities against tribal peoples in the northern and eastern mountains, as well as, more recently, the genocide against the Rohingya Muslim minority in western Rakhine state. Let's explore some of the details here. In 1988, as you may recall, there was the pro-democracy uprising led by Buddhist monks, which was put down brutally and resulted in the Slork taking power. In turn, finally and very belatedly, resulting in U.S. sanctions on Burma. In 1990, Congress passed the Customs and Trade Act, enabling the president to impose sanctions against Burma, which then-President George H.W. Bush declined to do. In 1997, President Clinton finally did so, but with a loophole allowing those firms who were already in Burma before 1990 to remain. The 2003 Burmese Freedom and Democracy Act barred Burmese imports, but still failed to move against U.S. corporations grandfathered in under the existing law. The Texas-based Unocal in 2003, completed construction of a pipeline to export gas from Burma's eastern Yadana fields to Thailand. The pipeline cuts right through the territory of the Karen and Mon tribal peoples, then the target of ethnic cleansing campaigns by the Burmese regime. In 2004, Unical settled in a case brought under the U.S. Alien Tort Claims Act, charging that the company was complicit with forced labor and other rights abuses. In 2005, Unical's French partner Total agreed to compensate Burmese victims to the tune of 6 million euros, around $7 million, paid into a fund for humanitarian projects. The Yadana pipeline is functioning today and being protested by global ecologists for its impacts 
on the sensitive rainforest regions it cuts through. In 2005, in the midst of the Yadana controversy, Unical was bought out by industry giant Chevron to the tune of $17.5 billion. As you may recall, the merger came after a bid to buy Unical for a higher price by the China National Offshore Oil Company was scuttled by congressional action. Unical's interest in Burma, as well as the Caspian Basin, were the key gold in the contest. The affair was openly portrayed as a U.S.-China race for access to Asia's hydrocarbon resources. So, a neocolonial great game with the indigenous peoples on the ground paying with their lives and the destruction or usurpation of their lands once again. U.S. and international sanctions on Burma were eased when the country's democratic transition began in 2011, after decades of dictatorship. Chevron, Total, and Shell are among the major oil companies that maintained or resumed operations in Burma and opposed renewed sanctions after the coup of February 2021. It wasn't until almost a year later, in January 2022, that these companies finally pulled out of Burma, citing the climate of instability. And this history of forced removal of ethnic minorities in league with oil development mega-schemes may be repeating itself with the Rohingya genocide in western Rakhine State, formerly known as Arakan State, which is to be traversed by the Shui Pipeline Project, which will allow oil from the Persian Gulf states and Africa to be pumped to China, bypassing a much slower sea route through the Strait of Malacca. It will also ship gas from Rakhine's offshore fields to China, And when the army attacks on the Rohingya began in 2016, advocacy groups, including Oil Change International, charged that Rohingya villages were being cleared or ethnically cleansed by the military to make way for the new pipeline. So the current struggle in Burma can really be seen as a direct continuation of the independent struggle that began in the 30s and can be recognized, in fact, as a struggle to finally make Burma truly decolonized. And once again, to end on a note of hope, as I always try to do, what we are now witnessing is finally the Burman insurgency against the junta in the Irrawaddy heartland has made common cause with the ethnic insurgencies in the mountains and jungles and formed a parallel government, the National Unity Government, N-U-G, that is ruling from below in liberated areas and building parallel power and calling for a democratic and federal Burma with wide autonomy for 
indigenous peoples. So I say, all power to the NUG in what can be seen as a continuation of Burma's anti-colonial struggle. And just because I gotta be me, I will also point out that the exact contrary line is being pushed by the pseudo-left campists and tankies, who are, of course, rooting for the junta. And they won't be listening to this rant because, of course, they hate Orwell. Oh, well, I do what I can. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. We need your support to keep going. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.